Open up your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2. All right, study of church history. Little, uh, I guess you could say, not really a side tangent because it's right there in the text of Revelation. But here God has promised us to give us history written in advance in Isaiah chapter 45 and Ecclesiastes chapters 1 and 3 say that history always repeats itself. And here He is in Revelation 2 and 3 telling us history way before it even happened in 90 AD. We covered Ephesus and somebody tell me, what was it that was the attack mode for Ephesus church age, this church from 90 AD to 200 AD? It, what, was the, what was the method that Satan used to implore to attack? Starts with an H. Heresy. That's right. Satan himself was launching this attack against the church. And he was specifically coming against this whole idea that man can now be a three-part being that his dead spirit, because everybody, every man, woman, boy, and girl that's ever been born on this planet, they are born as sinners because of our great-grandparents, Adam and Eve. And as a result of that, don't forget your water, Cameron. As a result of that, everybody who is born, they have a dead spirit inside of them. Because of what happened with Adam and Eve when they disobeyed. They lost that three-part being, that spirit connection with God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Satan was coming against them and attacking with heresy. Trying to get them to not really trust what their Bible says. Trying to get them to see that, no, your spirit doesn't need to be born again. No, you can do it through your own good works. You can do it through your own humanitarian efforts. And he tried so hard to get the church to cease from all this false doctrine. But he couldn't do it. So many people during this church age, they held fast to the form of sound words, and they didn't bite. They didn't give in. They knew that salvation only came through what Jesus Christ had done on the cross, paying the price of sin, justifying us. What's a simple definition for the word justified? You guys never heard that before? Is it to pay for it? Simplest way to think of it. The word justified means it's just if I'd never sinned. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross by paying the price of your sins, by bleeding out, taking your place on the cross, all who call upon Him to save them, the Bible says that Jesus Christ and God the Father look down on you and you are justified. He does not see your sinful state anymore. He sees you forgiven and cleansed because you have received the gift of His dear Son. Satan tried this, but he failed. He couldn't do it. And then we looked at Smyrna. What does Smyrna mean? Kind of has a connotation with one of the gifts that was given to Christ when he was born. Myrrh. Myrrh, which means bitterness. It has this connotation, this, this association with death. And what was Satan's attack method? What did he implore to try to stop the church during this time period of about 200 A.D. to 325 A.D.? James. Persecution. Persecution, that's right. And he, man, he threw everything at our flesh. Tried to tempt the flesh. Tried to destroy and break down the flesh in order to come against our body. To wear us out physically. To try to get, discourage the church body from doing the work of an evangelist from going out preaching the cross, preaching justification by faith in Christ and what he did on the cross so that others can be saved and then discipling them to go out and do the same thing, planting churches left and right. We saw just this horrific time for this period of 125 years where our bodies were just being destroyed and trying to get us in our flesh because of the fear of what was going to happen to us, trying to get us to succumb and to just recant our faith, to give up serving Christ. Uh, somebody tell me again, what does 2 Timothy 3.12 say? Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall what? And I'll tell you what, the moment you got saved... The moment you became justified in God's sight, you got a big bullseye on your back. Satan was now coming against you because he knows the potential that you have. He knows the damage you can do if you just simply believe this book and believe it to the point where you do something with it, where you share it with your friends and family. 
He knows what you can do. He knows the potential that you have. Don't ever let anybody rob you thinking that you can't change this world and turn it upside down. A group of common fishermen in the book of Acts, it says that they turned the world upside down just because they believed his word and they did what he said. If God was interested in doing that back then, do you think he's not interested in doing that right now in this day and age? Absolutely. And really, he's coming against this whole doctrine of the fact that, man, you know what? It doesn't matter what you do to my body because one day the Bible says that we are going to get a glorified body. We're going to get a brand new body that will never sin anymore. And this flesh, it's not going to tempt us anymore. It's not going to get us to do things and think things and say things we would never want to do, but we still end up doing. Man, have at it, Satan. Well, don't say that. We don't want to bring any more trouble on us than we already have. But in other words, a lot of those faithful martyrs, the fire, the cross, the lions and the bears, recorded history, that didn't bother them because they knew, man, if something happens to me here on this earth, I got a brand new body waiting for me. It's the doctrine of glorification that one day, not only is our spirit going to be saved, but man, we're going to get a brand new redeemed body that's going to look just like his. Now last week, we started the third church, which is Pergamos. What does Pergamos mean? I guess it's on your outline already filled in, if you forget. Much, Much marriage. And we looked how last week this church became a very worldly church started to get connected with the affairs of this world, with the riches and everything that this world had to offer them. And mark it down, it's coming for our soul, our mind, our emotions, and our will. In Ephesus, the main attack method was heresy. In Smyrna, it was persecution. And in Pergamos, it was compromise. If he could get Bible believers, well, they're not budging on the Word of God. They're not budging when we throw literally the gauntlet at them. Maybe if we can just make things appeal to their nature, if we can just have them appeal to their senses, if we can just make things look so good, and dare I even say make it look to be Christian, maybe I can then over time work them over on these two things and get them to recant, get them to forsake walking with God. And mark it down. What Satan is trying to do every day when he launches the world against you, it is to attack your sanctification. Every single day we are called to be set apart from this world. We should not. When your friends at school, when you go down the hallways, when you have conversations with your friends and your teachers at school, they should see there's something different about you. We shouldn't look like them. We shouldn't sound like them. We should not be them. We need to stand out, not for standing out sake, but because we have lights that we are shining in this dark, corrupt place, and it's drawing people to it. That's what's going on here. Satan is throwing all three of our key enemies, as you study 1 John, attacking our three-part being and the doctrines that are found in the Word of God what God had to say about all of these things, about what we are and what we are supposed to be doing, He sends absolutely everything He can at this Pergamos church period. And we saw last week that they started to give in. They started to compromise. They started to be like the world, to become worldly Christians. They started believing things that aren't found in the Bible. They started being around people who didn't believe the Bible and becoming real good friends with them, being close friends with them. We saw that. You guys are in Revelation chapter 2, right? Give me a reader for verses 14 and 15. Sam. But I, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. 
So hast thou also then uphold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate? We saw what the doctrine of Balaam was. How this somewhat priest, somewhat man of God, Bible's not really clear about him, but God wouldn't let him curse Israel. And so what did he do? He taught the enemies of God to then teach and deceive the Israelites, the people of God, how they can get God to curse themselves by making them become worldly, by making them to forsake what they believe and what they know to be right and true and what they're supposed to be doing, by getting them to give in, they ended up getting God to curse them for him because they ended up in fornication. They ended up eating things sacrificed unto idols. And in verse 15, as Sam read, they had people there who had this doctrine of Nicolaitans. Nico, conqueror, Laetan, the common man. There's this hierarchy of a priest class that says, man, you know what? You're not as smart as me because I went to Bible school. I went to seminary, trained under Adamantius Origen himself. And because you don't have the education and the status and the degrees on the wall and the PhD at the end of your name and the DR period at the beginning of your name, because you don't and I do, you need to listen to what I say. That's a Nicolaitan in short order. Anybody have teachers like that? <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't raise your hand. <laughs> yeah. Or boss, yeah. It's all over the place. The church back then started entertaining some of the things these guys were saying and started having them come and speak at their churches. Started going to them for advice. Started going to them for counsel. Started going to them for discipleship. That was part and parcel of the way they started to compromise. They started to sacrifice their beliefs in the Word of God in order to be more worldly. Talked about Constantine last week. This guy who has this vision, he has this, this experience happen to him. And as we saw in 2 Peter chapter 1, experiences do not equal salvation. That's why we spent the time at the beginning going over what true salvation is. Justification by faith. Faith in what? What Jesus Christ did on the cross. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Titus 3, 5 and 6. You can check those out later. And so what happens? He makes all of pagan Rome Christian. If you're looking at your outline, we saw that he issued this Edict of Milan. It's also known in history as the Edict of Toleration. Where, hey, we'll stop the persecution for a time. And here's some of these other things we'll give you. We'll give you all of the riches that the world has to say. We'll pay you beyond your wildest dreams, church. You guys haven't had that in 325 years since your Messiah left. Don't worry, everything's going to be good. Just come aboard with us, be with us, be united in this holy union, this holy matrimony, as we take our pagan beliefs and intermingle it with your Christian beliefs. Hence, much marriage. So all the things that he offered to them and so many people were giving in. So many of the genuine church, they were giving in and many pagans, as they started converting, quote unquote, they were bringing a lot of their pagan practices with them. Just check it out. Look at a history book from this time. Look at what people were doing back then. And that brings us to on your outline. I think we're on the backside for page three, right? The Council of Nicaea. Is that where we're at? My study sheet looks a little bit... Okay, it's at the bottom of, page of, the, of the front page. Mine's a little different than you guys. All right. So I know that was kind of a shotgunned uh, introduction. I wanted to kind of do this little thing on the board to kind of, I don't know, do our intro a little bit differently. But is there anything that is confusing? Anything that maybe I should go back over from last week? I guess I could just recommend you listen to the podcast from last week. It should be good there. If not... Let's go ahead and start in point number three, the Council of Nicaea. Oh man, I said last week this was a watershed moment in history. Not just church history, but in all of history. In fact, I am willing to bet, don't take my word as I'm saying it as though it's a fact, but I'm willing to bet in your history books at school, when it's talking about the history of Christianity, it probably starts talking about Christ and His disciples and then, 
You will probably see this large fast forward, this time gap, if you will, to this moment right here. And they will completely leave out the previous 325 years that we just spent looking at. That's why to understand this and to understand why the church gave in, you have to know what happened those first 325 years. You have to. I'm willing to bet, because I know that's what my history books were like. I just thought, oh, so Christianity, you have Christ and the disciples, and then Council of Nicaea. Huh, what did this guy Constantine believe? What's this council all about? And I never really asked the question until I took this class. What, are these guys really Christian? Because, turn over to Isaiah chapter 5 and add this to your notes too. I keep mentioning this passage, but we've yet to actually look at it. This is the thing, whenever you look at a history book, and I'm not telling you to pick a fight with your teachers. Not telling you to pick a fight with your teachers. I had to say that pointedly at a particular student who, for those of you listening to the podcast, will go nameless. Caleb. <laughs> yeah, it was Caleb. It was Caleb. <laughs> but this passage... Man, I, I, this is so key to your understanding of history in general. When it comes to anything that your teacher tells you, anything that you listen to on the news, or anything that you might read in books personally, if any of you in here are nerds like me and like actually reading history books, this is so key. And I talked about this last week. You get to this point where because people and historians aren't looking at, the, at history through the lens of the Bible, where they see Satan working to counter God, they miss out on what's actually the work of Satan versus what actually is the work of God. And here's what they end up doing. Can I get a reader for verse 20 and 21? Carson. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. They end up calling evil good, and they call that which is good evil. In many of your history books... They will talk about all of these things we touched on last week and tonight. Constantine's conversion, quote-unquote. The Edict of Milan, the Council of Nicaea. And they will call these things trademark, hallmark, watershed moments in Christianity. The only problem is none of those three things have anything to do with what the Bible actually has to say. And if they do have something to do with the Bible... It's twisted, and we're going to see that with the Council of Nicaea. So on your outline, what this council basically was, it was, it was it, all clergymen that were in the area, they were invited to this, uh, this all-expenses-paid meeting to help determine the fundamental doctrines of the church. And there was about a 318 people to attend. There should be some space there for you guys to take notes if you want to. 318 of them attended. It's about one-sixth of all the bishops that were in the entire empire. There was a man there whose name was Eusebius. Sorry if the podium's in the way and you can't see this. Eusebius. Does that name sound familiar to any of you? This is a deep one. Yeah. I won't blame anybody if they don't. This goes back to week one two when we started church history. Sam? He was a descendant of Origins, one of his lower... Or what, two generations away from his teaching? It was his disciple's disciple. Eusebius, if you remember from our Ephesus notes, he inherited the works of Origen. Origen was a man who in this seminary school of Alexandria, Egypt, had all of this crazy false doctrine not found in the Bible, and he was actively teaching this at this seminary school in Alexandria, Egypt, for years and had professors after him and then after him. And lo and behold, the guy who gets all 6,000 volumes of his corrupt teachings just so happens to be at this council. Make note of that. He opens the council and he sits at the right hand of Constantine. And during this council, they come to this doctrinal agreement on the Trinity because there's a lot of debate going on was, was Jesus Christ a created being? Was he actually God in human flesh? We don't really know. That's what they were coming together to, to try to solidify on. Come to an agreement together. 
This, for some reason, was the most debated topic in all of Christianity back in 325 AD. Meanwhile, other Bible believers were being beheaded, grilled, had their flesh ripped apart, all of those things we looked at during the Smyrna church age, that was still going on with some of them. And other places, other areas of worship called churches, you had a lot of people doing these pagan practices and saying that it has to do with Christianity, but yet, yeah, if I could be sarcastic for just a little bit, sure, the Trinity is the biggest issue that we need to talk about right here. No, no. That was settled a long time ago in the Word of God. But they come to an agreement, and they end up with this. And this is just a little segment. You can look up the Council of Nicaea, but here is the end of what they come up with. They basically say that, no, Jesus Christ is not a created being. He is God in human flesh. And here's the kicker. Uh-oh. Did I just do it again? But those who say... There was a time when he, Jesus, was not. And he was not before he was made. And he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence. In other words, they're saying that Jesus Christ is not God in human flesh. If anybody says that, or the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. This creed, in 325 A.D., started and created and formulated the creation of this brand new religion, new, quote-unquote, because Ecclesiastes 1 and chapter 3, there's nothing new under the sun. Next week, we're actually going to look at a couple Old Testament references that point that this religion was here. But we see here, the church is now holy, Catholic, and apostolic. These words are just now starting to circulate within the culture during this time because of this creed. But here's the thing, though. That's not really my main beef with this. My main beef with this is that if somebody doesn't believe something that is biblically true, they are condemned by this church. That I have issue with. And even more so, I have issue with genuine Bible believers compromising and looking at a statement like that and saying, okay, sure, I believe it. I'll go along with that. The reason I have issue with that is because... Oh, wait. Whoops. That was a little bit too soon there. I'll come back to this one. John 3.18 says, and this is Jesus speaking, He that believeth on him is not condemned... But he that believeth not is condemned already. In other words, if you are in here tonight and you have never called upon Jesus Christ to save you, you've never realized that he was your sin bearer and that you need a savior and you've never called upon him, if you don't believe, you're condemned already, the Bible says. This is what Jesus said. Two verses after the most famous verse in all the Bible. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Again, who is speaking here? Jesus. Jesus. He has authority and power to condemn. Not a man. Not a church. He. And in the mouth of two or three witnesses, Romans 8.34. You might want to add these verses to your notes. Who is he that condemneth? <laughs> it's Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again. Yeah, I would think if anybody had the power and the authority to condemn anyone, it'd be the person who died and then with his own power rose himself up again from the grave. Who is even at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us. Again, the issue is not a church believing something that's unbiblical. That's the beauty of freedom. You can believe that if you want I'm not knocking on them for believing that. I'm knocking on people who know what the Bible says. Whoops. In these verses here, 
and are choosing to ignore these verses and compromise for the sake of getting rid of the persecution going on. Who want to try to just stop the pain. I don't like this pain right now, Lord. I'll do anything just to make it stop. It's so rough. I'm tired of seeing my family members butchered. I'm tired of going through and being made fun of in my schools. Tired of being made fun of because I'm different. Because I hold fast to this book and nobody else does. So I'll just give in. I'll just close my mouth and not witness and be a light at the school anymore. I'll still come to church on Sundays, but I'm going to compromise here because I'm tired of all the persecution. You get it? That's the issue. The Bible says this, and man is making a statement about something else, as though it is equal or greater than Scripture. This is where it starts beginning. This is what this council and what this creed all established. Now, the other thing about the Trinity, and here's why I said this really is no big issue at all, because, man, if only we had 1 John 5, 7, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are what? Pretty cut and dry, right? That's one of the greatest proof texts in the Bible that God is a three-part being. Yet he's one. Oh, but here's the thing, though. Because of Eusebius, the man who inherited Origen's works, they didn't have this in their manuscripts. Here is 1 John 5, 7. Here's our Bible. This right here is called the Latin Vulgate. Qui trace sunt qui testimonium dant. Now, full disclosure. This might this is gonna come as a shock to so many of the of you. I, contrary to popular belief, do not speak a lick of Latin. I know, shocking. But I don't have to be a scholarly expert to know there's some stuff missing here. Yeah? It's pretty evident. I mean, just look at it, you know, because Latin's very similar to Spanish. So those of you who were in Spanish, help me out. Uh, trace. Three. three. Yeah, there's three. Uh, testimonium. Uh, that's kind of the same as bare record, right? Uh, in heaven. Uh... uh. I don't, I don't see anything else. Oh, you know what? Dant, it just means uh, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. All wrapped in one word. Yeah. No. That's the Latin Vulgate. That is a Bible that came about... Uh, I want to say the 500s. Don't quote me on that. But their manuscripts they got from Eusebius. I've studied an entire year of that. Read so many books. That's the guy. That's the connection. That's where it goes. So no wonder they're debating the Trinity because they didn't even have that verse in their Bible. You better know your book. You better study to show yourself approved, those of you who are here on Sunday. So, now that the church is officially married to the world, point number four, we start seeing all this paganism flooding into Christianity now that the doors were opened. And mark it down. You give Satan an inch, he's going to take a yard. You start compromising in one area of your life. You think he's just going to stop there? He will keep going until he has your entire life. Until he gets you to stop doing the work of the Lord. You know what? I'm just not going to read my Bible today. It's just too tired today. I'm going to sleep in. Remind me, how does that go for the rest of your day when that happens? Yeah. It's the same thing here. They cracked open that door just a little bit to compromise, and then the pagans just broke it down and flooded Christianity. Here's some of the things. Yes, believe it or not, Christmas holiday, it's a pagan holiday. 
It was the celebration of this mystery Babylonian religion that I had touched on last week. Celebrating this mother goddess named Semiramis who had a virgin-born son named Tammuz. Flip over to Ezekiel chapter 8 and put this down in your notes. Where did Andy go? Probably the only time I'll ever ask that question, but I am actually curious. Oh, that's right. I wanted to use him as an illustration here coming up. I think I still might be able to, but I wanted to confirm it first. All right. Ezekiel, yeah, I'll ask when I get to it in a little bit. Ezekiel 8. Oh, man. How do I want to do this? All right, we're just going to go around the room, and we're going to take a verse, starting in verse 7. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 7. And I will interject and give my two cents in, so if I interrupt you, don't take offense to it. All right, we're going to start here with Carson, 7, and then work our way down and snake on over until the end. All right. And he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Then said he unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall, and when I have digged in the wall, behold a door. And he said unto me, Go in, and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. Alright, you guys get the picture? He's at a hole in the wall, and the hole in the wall he sees a door, and then he peeks inside, and there's some wicked stuff going on. Kind of like Numbers 25 stuff that we saw last week with Balaam. Continue. So, <clears throat> so I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. So there were images and idols on the walls of this building. He was looking, he sees the, all these statues, these, these idols and these icons going down this hallway. Interesting. Next verse. And there stood before them 17 men of the ancients, of the house of Israel, and in the midst of them stood Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense. So there's a man there with incense that he's just going up and down in this place. Next verse. Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery. For they say, The Lord seeth us, hmm. the Lord hath forsaken the earth. He said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that bend you. And he brought me unto the door, the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there, there sat a woman weeping for um, Tamuz. Tamuz, the virgin-born son of Semiramis, the Babylonian religion that was worshipped in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel in Babylon. Here in this building that has a door, there are people where there are idols and icons on the walls. There's a man with a censer offering up these. They're supposed to be the prayers of the well, sure, the saints, we'll call them that. So they were pagan originally, but yeah, we'll rename them saints. Because that's what they did. They used to be called Jupiter. They used to be called Venus. They used to be called all the other Roman and Greek gods of their myths that they had these great statues for. Check it out in history. Fact check me on it. Those statues just got renamed as saints. And at the very end, we have these women who are weeping for Tammuz. Oh, I'll keep it PG. Because you could look at encyclopedias at what this actual weeping ceremony for Tammuz was all about. Did you get the gist of it? Just go back and read Numbers 25. Massive people in this building... And this ceremony of weeping for this virgin-born son involves what John said in Revelation chapter 2 of much fornication. Hmm. 
All right, we'll go ahead and stop there. And the Old Testament, boy, that sounds very strikingly familiar, doesn't it? An Old Testament passage talking about this. That's really where we get Christmas from. It was the celebration of the virgin birth of Tammuz. Easter was actually called Ishtar. That's where you get the name. Ishtar celebrating fertility and immortality. But it comes from immorality, hence the fertility aspect of it. Again, when God scattered them in Genesis chapter 11, they took this worship of their mother, mother goddess with them as they went all throughout the regions. That's why Semiramis, the mother goddess, goes by many different names. Venus, Isis, Ishtar. Just check out mother goddesses in ancient times, in ancient history. They all have a very similar story. And another through line that they all kind of have is that it involves a lot of fornication or much marriage and intermingling of the church with the world, physically as well as spiritually. Turn over to Jeremiah 44 and put this down next to the next one. Jeremiah 44. Another thing that was a pagan tradition, the worship of Mary. Again, this was one of those things that it was co-opted. It, it was renamed as such because she wasn't called Mary in ancient history. Here's what she actually went by in Jeremiah 44. Can I get a reader for verses 15 and 16? Heather? And then after that, I need a reader for 17, 18, and 19. Carson. Jeremiah 44, verse 15. Then all the men which knew that their wives had been burned incense unto their other gods, and all the women that stood by, the great multitude, even all the people that dwelt in the land of Egypt and Paphros, answered Jeremiah, saying, as for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee. We will not hearken unto the words of God. We're going to do our own thing. Verse 17. But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the Queen of Heaven. Say that again, Carson. But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the Queen of Heaven. Those last four words again? The Queen of Heaven. The Queen of of heaven. This is the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah was written in 700 BC. Give or take 100 years. 700 years before Christ. Queen of heaven. This is where I need you. What church did Andy grow up in? And that's located where? So it's a pagan church. It's a pagan temple. I knew he was a pagan heathen. So they offered sacrifices to uh, pagan rituals, right? No. What kind of... Is it not a temple? What is it? It's a church. Oh. The Queen of Heaven. Oh, and you also might be able to answer this. Uh, when you told everybody that you were going on a missions trip to Ireland, what did all your coworkers say? So what do you need to go on a missions trip there for? They're all Catholic. They're all Christians. My coworkers said the exact same thing. And then when we were actually there doing a VBS for our missionaries, I come across a room where this is hanging up in one of the kids' area, one of the kids' classes. Mary, Immaculate Queen of the Universe, with all of her children, with a scepter in her hand and a crown on her head. Again, if people want to believe that, Go ahead. It's a free country. The issue is, where? Where is this found in the Bible? I do see someone wearing a crown and with a scepter in his hand in Revelation 19, but that's who? Jesus. The only reference to queen of heaven or the universe, you and I just read. 700 years before Christ was even born. And the context is 
we are not going to do what the Word of God says. We're not going to do what the Bible says, but we're going to do whatever we want to do. To burn incense, to pour out, I'm back on verse 18, to pour out drink offerings unto her. So there's an offering that you drink from. Did we make her cakes to worship her? Cakes uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament too, it's bread. So there's a drink offering, there's a bread offering. Ow. <laughs> we have wanted all things... Am I in the same verse? I skipped. Sorry. We've wanted all things and have been consumed by the sword and the famine. Oh, that's kind of interesting. That kind of plays into church history. That second half of 17. It says... Dude, I should have just let you keep reading. All right. Carson, you take over verse 17, 18. Just take over the rest of the lesson. Right. Okay. Um... And to pour out drink offerings unto her, as we have done, we and our fathers, our hmm. kings and our princes, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then had we plenty of victuals, and were well, and saw no evil. But since we left off to burn incense to the Queen of Heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto her, we have wanted all things, and have been consumed by the sword and by the famine. And when, we burned, and when we burned incense to the Queen of Heaven and poured out drink offerings unto her, did we make cakes to worship her and pour out drink offerings unto her without our men? I tell you, it's kind of eerie. All of those details in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Old Testament books, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came onto the scene. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes, that which hath been is now. That which shall be hath already been. Nothing new under the sun. This all goes back to Genesis chapter 11. Just go back and read it tonight. And here's the thing. If I could kind of take a break for a moment from all of the history and from all of the doctrine of it, if anything, what this should be doing is breaking your heart for family members and friends that you have, that you see on a regular basis, that are caught up in this. Which again, beautiful thing about living in this country is you can worship whatever you want. And if people want to worship it, okay. But to call it Christian, to call it biblical or scriptural, it's not the case. It's man's wisdom. It's man's words. And I'll go all the way back here to the heresy that Satan was trying to rob people from. It's all coming to a head. The rosary. That's nothing new. They used that to count prayers to Ashtar back on your outline. They would count, be they would count beads. They would rub their beads in order to gain favor with their, their gods. Again, I mentioned this already. Idols. They renamed the Roman gods to Peter, Jesus, the other saints, because, man, you know, we got it to statues already. It's going to cost an arm and a leg to have somebody else make new statues. Let's just rename them. Hope nobody notices. And not only that, but even from a governmental standpoint, the, the, the way that the pagan system was set up, they had it to where as, well, we're a state church now. So let's have some of our state officials and some of our state titles kind of carry on over to this new, quote-unquote, religion that we're forming. You see, now the Roman emperor, he became the pope. Fill in. Do you guys have blanks there? Yeah. Roman emperor now is called the pope. The pagan Roman senate was now known as the College of Cardinals. The imperial governors became the archbishops. The provincial governors... They were renamed bishops. The civitas, they were now priests. And the temple virgins, what do you think they became? Nuns. Nuns. Oh, and lastly, counterfeit Bibles. Constantine, the emperor, who now declared himself to be Pontifex Maximus, the supreme high priest of the heathen. That's what that name means. Constantine orders the publishing of 50 new Bibles from who? Eusebius. Constantine took the guy who inherited Origen, 
I told you guys, don't ever forget that name, Origen. The guy who wrote 6,000 volumes of corrupt doctrine, things that he himself believed with no foundation in the Bible, or if it was, it was twisted, taken out of context, and made to fit into the Bible. That guy and all of his works find their way to this Eusebius, and Eusebius is ordered by the emperor himself to make up 50 new Bibles to start publishing throughout the land. Using manuscripts that go all the way back and are traced all the way back to Alexandria, Egypt. Do a word search in your concordance tonight. Every time you see the word Egypt mentioned, negative. God's people were delivered and redeemed from Egypt. God warns in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1, Woe unto the man who goes down to Egypt to get help. You know what Egypt is a picture of? The world, this world system, worldliness, compromise. And man, I'll tell you what, I've actually looked at some of these manuscripts. I've studied it out. I've continued studying it out. The manuscripts from this guy, and when they orchestrated these 50 new Bibles, they were completely and utterly careless. Completely and utterly careless. They would have things, it's called, it's, it's uh, the way that the manuscript was written, it's known as an unsealed text. U-N-C-I-A-L, if you want to write that down. You know what unsealed text looks like? Does anybody want to get a picture of this afterwards? I'll just save it in case. I got space over here. All right. Just in case somebody does. Here's what unsealed text looks like. Can everybody see? If you can't, go ahead and step up. Or stand up, not step up. Come up here to slap me. I'm going to slap back. What does this say? Does it? Does it? Does it? That's just one line. Imagine manuscripts after manuscripts after manuscripts of a text that looks like that. And you're under command from the emperor who has just hacked off how many heads in war. Boy, I better get this job done. Does it sound like a lot of care went into that? No. There were so many times where they would look at it and were like, oh, it says this. Oh. And then they would scribble it out. You can actually see the manuscripts when you look at them. They're completely a mess. Then they decided to do something that was very odd. Whereas most manuscripts, especially those of Antioch, Syria, they were on this fine, very, very thin, uh, almost, it's basically a papyrus paper. Very, very thin, like newspaper, or like these pages, even thinner. As opposed to putting them on that, the emperor's like, no, I'm the emperor of Rome, basically the known world. We're gonna put it on vellum. Vellum scrolls. You know what vellum scrolls were? How costly do you think that was? Now ask yourself. You got manuscripts like that. Cost a pretty penny. Are you going to want just any Joe Schmo coming up and getting their grubby hands on it? No. You're going to take extra special care to make sure that gets locked up. But that's not just in the hands of just anybody, which is exactly what happened. Whereas people who had manuscripts from Antioch, Syria, yeah, they started falling apart because of the use and because everybody was using them. They were writing and making copies of them and passing them on to other churches and other Christians, other Bible believers. Yeah, they started disintegrating, but at least they were passing them and circulating them throughout all of Europe and Rome. These manuscripts never saw the light of day until about the mid-1800s. We'll get to that in about, well, at this pace, 70 weeks. <laughs> Locked away. Mark it down. When you compromise with the world, your beliefs, you compromise your beliefs to fit in with the world, you will trade the best 
for the better. You will ultimately trade the better for the good, and you will eventually ultimately trade the good for sin. This is what compromise gets you. This is why we stand our ground. We do not retreat. We know, we know what we believe, and we share it with others. We don't be mad about it, but we don't budge. Because we've studied these things out. All right. Number five, the trail of blood summary of church history up to the end of 500 AD. That's the time that this church period roughly ends. And let me just tell you guys this too. The biggest thing I want you guys to see, go home tonight, because these passages that we saw in Revelation chapter 2, they're pretty short. Go back, reread the passages describing the periods of church history we've covered, and just compare it with your notes. And if you really want to do some digging, compare it with history. See how much it lines up with what God had said in Revelation chapter 2. Again, that's the thing that continues to blow my mind, that all these history books saying that Christianity technically began 325 A.D. Well, not according to God's timetable. I'm going to go with the book instead. So the Trail of Blood summary. Number one, you start seeing the gradual change from a democracy to a preacher church government. Number two, you start seeing the change from salvation by grace, that doctrine of justification. God justifies you. He cleanses you through His blood, not your works, lest any man should boast. You start seeing a change from that away to now, point number three, the change from believer's baptism to infant baptism, or in other words, salvation by works. You have to do something. Your salvation is integral to the things that you do, in other words. Number four, you start seeing the hierarchy organized. What do I mean by that? The Nicolaitans are now in full charge. Ephesus was commended because they didn't stand the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Pergamos started tolerating the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. Now, they're the ones running the church. And in some cases, they still do. Number five, the seat of the empire is now changed to Constantinople. Six, infant baptism is established by law and made compulsory. What do I mean by that? You got to think during this time period, you had a lot of infant deaths popping up. Someone goes to the Nicolaitan, because after all, he's the one who studied under Origen and, and Eusebius, and he's the master. I'm just a commoner. What could, how could I possibly know God? You are a grieving mother or a grieving father, and you just went to your leader in the church, and you ask him, what just happened to my baby? And rather than that supposed man of God going to 2 Samuel chapter 12, rather than him going and showing all throughout Scripture were precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of a, of a loved one, precious in the sight of the Lord is that how much Jesus cares for children in Matthew chapter 18. Oh, and in 2 Samuel chapter 12, where after David's sin with Bathsheba, where he has this son that he's now conceived in this adulterous relationship, and that David, yes, the man after God's own heart, kills the husband of the woman he had the affair with, when God takes that baby away from him, David says, I will go unto him again. Rather than the supposed man of God telling that to the grieving mother and father, oh, you know what? My church attendance is kind of low. I know. It's going to hit him hard at first. But once word gets out that, man, she didn't baptize the baby, so bad news for the baby. But once word gets out, everybody will kind of be afraid of that. And so as soon as their babies are born, they're going to come and we'll be able to sprinkle them and get them saved through baptism. Yeah, and then my church will be bigger and I'll have more people. I'll have more attendance. I'll have more people there. Oh, but what am I going to do with a grieving mother? I know. I saw this guy doing at this church talking about indulgences. And the idea that if they just gave more money to the church, 
I, as the man of God, could pray that baby out of hell or purgatory into heaven. Well, of course, for a fee. Can't do this stuff for free. You see how people who have been stripped from their Bibles can very easily fall into that? Of course you can, because you see it happen now where people believe everything they see on YouTube, on social media, and the news. Instead of searching the matter out. Also during this time, if you want to take note, flip on back to Revelation chapter 2 as we start to wind up here. Something we didn't really touch on. Well, we kind of did in uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. You have, during this period, something come up called transubstantiation. Break down that word. A substance being transformed into something else. Otherwise known as the Eucharist. It was the doctrine that communion helped cleanse you from your sins. So again, kind of like infant baptism becoming compulsory. It needed to happen on a regular basis. Same thing with... The Eucharist, because after all, man, I just had communion last week, but I think about all the sins I did this week. Man, I'm the guy up front says I need to go to him and I need to be cleansed from my sin again. You have this doctrine come up of the Eucharist that, that this wafer, it's actually the body of Christ. It, it, this substance of bread gets transformed into the body of Christ, and this substance of this wine, actual fermented wine, gets transubsidized into the blood of Christ. Huh. Revelation 2.14 I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Oh, this must be the Smyrna church. Ephesus? No. Oh, no, it's Pergamos the very time frame we're studying. And it just so happens that this doctrine comes out then. Hmm. It's connected with Balaam. <sighs> Let me check my notes here. We got time. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. We got time. Don't snicker. Hebrews chapter 10. Write this down on your notes too. Can you imagine if I, if I just fit all of this stuff into last week's lesson? <laughs> oh, man. I thought about it. There was a moment where I thought, I can do this. <laughs> Surely I can do this. If Hebrews chapter 10, the whole idea, the whole idea that you need cleanse from your sin every single week, that you need to be saved again, in other words. What they, how they kind of have to make that make sense in the Bible is they kind of have to make it sound as though, well, if it's the blood of Jesus Christ and Him dying on the cross and His sacrifice, if that's what cleanses you, because they do use those words, then that must mean that this, this, this substance of bread and wine, that it transforms and it also becomes this continual sacrifice where Jesus is continuously being offered to pay the price for your sins since the last time you just took communion a week ago. So you're constantly sacrificing and crucifying afresh the blood of Christ, a phrase in the Bible which the Bible says you should not do. In other words, when Christ literally, physically died on the cross and was buried and rose again from the grave, that to them is not enough. It needs to happen again and again and again to pay the price for your sins continuously. In other words, it's not a one-and-done, you-are-justified. That's what they say. Hebrews chapter 10, look with me in verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. How many times? And for how long? All. All. And he talks about the Old Testament. Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He's talking about the Old Testament here, but I find it interesting that it has a connotation of what we're talking about now. But this man, verse 12, talking about Christ, after he had offered how many sacrifices for sins? One. For how long? 
ever sat down on the right hand of God. Jump to verse 14. For by how many offerings? One. He hath perfected for how long? Ever. Them that are sanctified. Again, just go with the Bible. You'll have all the answers you need. Just go with the Bible. We need to study these things so that we know them. We need to become workmen so that we're not ashamed when we're able to give a reason of the hope that is in us to everyone that asketh. Again, funny how this connects with Sunday's lesson. Number seven on your outline. Christians begin to persecute Christians. You see this gradual decline into that. Number eight. The dark ages begin... Technically, 426 A.D., just as this church period is finishing. How did this happen? Many Christian leaders were elevated to high status in the Catholic Church. They got power, they got prestige, they got authority. Again, I'm talking genuine Christians. This is where they compromised. And since the emperor professed Christ, it became popular for everyone to do it. He's our leader, after all. We want to make sure we're following him. Consequently, church attendance started to become at an all-time high, and boy, oh boy, so was the offering plate. Now, from the attendee side, they wanted their idols back. They wanted to keep having their pagan doctrine, hence combining the two. Now, as I mentioned before, persecution takes a halt for a time. They're not getting crushed anymore like they were in Smyrna. And as a result, the church of genuine believers starts to grow complacent. Having grown to become a worldly church, they neglected the scriptures, preferring the priest and the man behind the pulpit to read to them and to interpret what was being said. This led to the Bibles from false manuscripts. Ultimately, those Bibles that Eusebius made, they were translated into Latin, which was not the common language of the day anymore, which makes you as the attendee dependent upon the man who knows Latin. When the Bible gets taken out of your hands and you become dependent on somebody else, this is what happens. The entrance of thy words giveth light. If the entrance of these words are now taken from you, what do you now have? Darkness. The Bible was ripped from the hands of the common man. No, I shouldn't say ripped. The Bible was given away from common men because they compromised on their stance. They gave it away. They gave up believing it. They gave up doing what they were supposed to be doing. And as a result, is it any wonder that you enter into what historians call the Dark Ages at the end of this period? Oh, excuse me. That's not the politically correct term they use anymore. It's now known as the Middle Ages. I wonder why. Because if you start looking at why was it so dark? and you start asking questions, and you start thinking for yourself, and you start digging into some of the things that go on during the next church age that we're going to study, and then the one after that too, you start to see a little bit more as to why it's known as the Dark Ages. Some of you guys who know history know what goes on during that time. Crusades, Inquisitions. You'll see why it's dark. And of course, this led to the illiteracy rates going through the roof because we're not reading anymore, which allowed the priests in Rome to control the people, Nicolaitans. It allowed them to control what the illiterate masses believed. Number nine, the sword and torch rather than the gospel becoming the power of God into salvation. Again, we'll see that with the Crusades and Inquisitions. All semblance of religious liberty dies and is buried and remains buried for many centuries. They promised religious liberty Hence, the Edict of Toleration. A lot of preaching on toleration these days, huh? Is it really toleration, though? Is it really toleration when you start talking to people about what you actually believe? They don't tolerate it there. It's only one-sided. The Edict of Milan promised religious liberty, but no. 
And then loyal New Testament churches, by whatever name called, they're hunted and hounded for the utmost limit of new Catholic temporal power. Remnants scattered over the world are finding uncertain hiding places in forests, mountains, valleys, dens, and caves of the earth. The correction God gives is found in verse 16. He tells this church, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It doesn't matter if you guys even compromise this week where you decided I'm not going to witness today, even though, man, God, you have a door wide open and I should walk through it and give the gospel to that person. If you compromised, guess what? Tomorrow's a new day. That's what he's saying here. Repent. Yeah, you compromised. Okay, I still love you, and I still want to use you where you're at. Repent. That's all he's saying. Otherwise, I'll come and I will fight against them quickly. Even during this time, God had Bible believers that didn't compromise, and they held fast to another sword, a two-edged sword that's known as the Word of God in Hebrews 4.12. So the application for Bible believers, be careful. Satan is a great compromiser and counterfeiter. He will do whatever it takes to get you to compromise and pull you away from the truth. He is more than willing to give you something good in order to steal away what is best. What have you been struggling with? What is Satan tempting you with? Is it a relationship? Maybe it's college and where you're going to go to college or what you're going to do with your life. Don't compromise. Bathe it in prayer. Seek a multitude of counselors on whatever the issue is. Do not compromise for what you want to do. All right, let's pray. Thanks.